And Lord, bless our team as we prepare this week. Bless us while we're on the trip. Help us to be a blessing to Rehoboth and the community there, especially the Navajo people that we get to interact with um, and the school team members that we get to encourage and work alongside. Uh, we pray also that you would bless Pastor Menji and his family as they are on sabbatical. Give them rest. Uh, give them shalom, your peace, and help them to enjoy your grace anew this morning and throughout the day. We praise your name. Amen. If you have been around long enough, because part one of these analogies that I'm going to reference or illustrations I'm going to reference goes all the way back to the old property. And I want to say around 2001, maybe even 2000. So that's two decades ago now. But Pastor Dwayne at the old property and Pastor Benji, I think just a couple months ago, it might have been a year or so, but both have had some stomach Let's go with churning, stomach churning illustrations about chickens. You may or may not remember the one I'm talking about, but I know I enjoyed seeing my family kind of like reach over and grab something as they explained. Pastor Dwayne grew up on a chicken farm, chicken ranch, and he at one point uh, illustrated wringing a chicken's neck, which was quite entertaining to watch the congregation, however you feel about that moment. And Pastor Benji's, I can't remember if it was the defeathering process or something else, but um, they both at some point used it in a sermon. They used it well. Well, this is my chicken story, following the, the, the chicken illustrations of grace. Mine is a little different, although those of you who know which one it is, it might be just as stomach-turning. My apologies if it is. But Wildwood, one of the camps that we go to, uh, we were there in June again this summer. This is around 2006, give or take a year. And we were cleaning up after dinner. So you can imagine if this is a trash can where we are scraping food into the trash can. And I am on the microphone side. And one of our students, Carl Swenson, is about where the stool is. And we are both scraping scraps of chicken and leftover uh, bits of the meal into the trash can. There are lots of bears, so we have to take care of not only the trash, but also all the rest of the food correctly. Otherwise, it will join us in the tents. So it's quite an important process. And as we're scraping them away, you need to know a couple things about Wildwood. It is on a hill. It is at altitude. And we are burning calories like crazy. So we are hungry. Much of the time, you've heard me talk about fasting, and maybe you remember me talking about Jack, one of our college students now, high school students then, looking at me when he was deprived of food. Um, we enjoyed that story again this year. But as I was here and Carl was there, and I was still hungry, just physically, but not thinking about it too much, a third person, and I don't know who it is, but it wasn't somebody from our group, walked up and dumped an entire chicken into the trash can. And my brain thought, that's a perfectly good chicken. Somebody should eat that. And my body thought, that sounds good. To which my brain immediately went with last week's no, all of them at one time, because my hand reached into the trash, grabbed the chicken, and my mouth took a bite. And I was eating trash chicken. As I looked over to Carl, his eyes got giant, very big. And I immediately responded to him with, don't tell Tiff. <laughs> Tiffany's my wife. 
She had threatened at that point in our marriage that she would stop kissing me if I continued to eat gross things in front of the youth group. The chicken story is one of many, uh, mostly that preceded it. Some have followed, but mostly that preceded it. Uh, uh, Gross food stories. There was the spam and vomit story. There was the toothpaste and toothpaste water story. There's quite a few others in there as well. And if you are imagining things around those, you might be more correct than you realize, and you could be more incorrect, but probably not, because I had some eating issues around entertaining the youth group with gross eating things that all came to fruition at the moment I was eating chicken out of a trash can and shouting at one of my kids, don't tell my wife. Unlike the graced pastors, you might not have an interesting stomach-churning chicken story, but I can almost promise that you have a moment in your life where you were thinking while you were acting, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And that is Romans 7. Romans 7 certainly isn't talking about chicken, but it is talking about those many moments that we encounter in our walk with Christ where we want to go one way, we end up going a maybe even predictable other way, and we're left thinking, what in the world am I doing? We're conflicted. We don't know what's happening. So turn to Romans 7 if you have a Bible. It will be up on the screens. If not, uh, I'm using the ESV, and we're going to hit Romans 7 and Romans 8 in some chunks, bigger chunks. Uh, each of these sermons kind of approach Scripture a little bit different ways we go through it. For a variety of reasons. We're going to slow down some today, mostly in 7, but I'm also going to talk about the fact that 8-1 is a horrible chapter break, and you're not supposed to stop reading and then start reading at 8-1 and the end of 7, but his Paul's thoughts flow through in about the middle of 8. 7-1, this is 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul uses a particular illustration for marriage, one that we're familiar with, but a little bit like Romans 1 and verse 26 and 27, I got to deal with a couple things that scripture says before we get to the illustration itself. I don't mean this to be offensive to anybody else, but he's dependent on us understanding the till death do us part part of Scripture. That the Bible's clear about marriage, that when I've done weddings up here and I've stood about 10 feet behind me and we've said our vows and we mentioned that one, that we understand the nature of marriage. This is one of those side dishes I was talking about. But here are a couple things. It's not everything in Scripture about marriage, but it's a couple things that Paul's expecting us to understand. Number one, marriage is a lifelong commitment. We know that. 
but we also know that our culture struggles with that. We also know this one, but we don't like to think about it, especially if we like somebody that it doesn't apply to. Paul makes it clear. Scripture talks about this in, in a different way throughout Scripture. But believers are supposed to marry other believers, another believer. A growing Christian is what I'll say in the youth group. Make sure that they are growing in their faith, not just claiming faith, but that they know God and they are walking with him. There are a couple exceptions allowing you out of marriage. Paul's not dealing with them here other than death. But there are two New Testament addressed and one Old Testament case for divorce. All of them are A's. There are three A's. It's adultery. It's abandonment. That's a particular one in 1 Corinthians 7, which is interesting, a particular nature of abandonment. And then the other one, this is the Old Testament case, is abuse. That abuse is not allowed. If you've ever wondered, why doesn't Scripture talk about abuse in regards to being allowed a divorce, the answer is it does. It's talking about it in the Old Testament in a particular spot. That is another interesting one to look at and understand. But those are allowances for divorce. It also challenges us again, really in 1 Corinthians 7, but throughout Scripture, it challenges maybe some trends in our culture. We go kind of two ways at one time, one inside the church and then one both in and outside the church, where we somehow drift toward too restrictive in regards to remarriage while also embracing remarriage much too quickly and too often at times. It seems like we all become matchmakers again the minute we know somebody who we think needs to get remarried instead of encouraging them to pause and say, Lord, where am I at? I've experienced a tough situation and I need to wrestle with you and my circumstances instead of just being encouraged along by everybody and not thinking about it, but being caught up in emotion. I don't mean to accuse anybody of not thinking about it. But the older I get, the more I realize a couple things, that teenage friendships maybe are much better than our adult friendships. As again this morning, I saw some teenagers hug each other because they hadn't seen each other since yesterday. But maybe that's what friendship is supposed to be. Another one I'm reminded of is that whole teenage puppy love stage maybe isn't a teenage thing, but an early romance thing. As I've seen some of our old timers also experience that with new love. Another one is this, and we don't like this at all, especially our culture, but not even our church culture. If we think, the, but the, the disciples didn't like it any better. If we think the biblical guidelines for marriage are too difficult, then we are encouraged to remain single and celebrate celibacy. But we don't like that one, so we ignore it. Or, like the disciples, we look at Jesus and go, well, that's too hard. Both of the that's that are in play. Now, all of this said, the most important thing to remember is we're not in the condemnation section. That's not why Paul is bringing this up. We are enjoying grace. So even in regards to what I just said, because he used an illustration, to those who never thought you would be divorced but have found yourself divorced, maybe and probably against your wishes, enjoy grace. I've seen many friends struggle with, especially having grown up in the church, when they find themselves as a divorcee, struggle with dismantling everything they always imagined for their adult life and feeling like complete failures 
or feeling worthless, and that is not the point that Paul's making here. In fact, far from it, 8-1 is coming. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who maybe realize you wrongly filed for divorce, enjoy grace. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. There is sometimes accountability and there is the call to repentance always. But not condemnation. And sometimes we in the church condemn rather than reminding people to repent and enjoy grace. And to those that are a billion points in between those two or maybe not directly involved in the marriage relationship but definitely affected by a marriage that is dissolving. To those who are caught between two loved ones, family members that are breaking apart, whether it is mom and dad or a different dynamic of the family, enjoy grace. When scripture makes a statement like these, it is never apart from grace. It is always a call to grace. So treat it as such. But Paul uses that illustration. Till death do us part, but then at death, freed from that aspect of the law. And he's making a point about us and our relationship with the law by using a very familiar relationship of marriage. So in verse 1 he says, or it says we're freed from the law, but there's kind of a, are we freed from the law? Is that how this is going to work? Aren't we bound by the law? Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking for those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. But, 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 and that's our response. Aren't, aren't we? And Paul says it's changed because of the death of Christ and because we are associated with him in his death. In 6, he had just used a picture of baptism and he says that we are dead to sin and slaves not to the law but to righteousness and slaves to God. Verse 4, he emphasizes again that we, are, we have died to the law in Christ. Specifically, it says that we died so that we might belong to another. That's why he's using the picture of marriage. If you're married and your spouse dies, Paul is weighing in here, Romans 7. He weighs in in 1 Corinthians 7, and he says, you are then freed from that law that holds you to be faithful to your spouse, and you are free to remarry. Again, I would say, just because of how our culture interacts with it, that doesn't mean rush out and get remarried. But you're free to remarry. And he's using that as the picture. Just as you are free to remarry if your spouse dies and belong to another, then you likewise, here's his analogy, you are freed from the law to belong to Christ. In verse 6, we're released from the law. Not that it's being ignored or rejected. In fact, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 points out it's fulfilled in Christ. But we are freed to live by and serve the Spirit. It's a new way. The Spirit popped up in Romans 5, 5 in Paul's argument on the Romans road. But we are freed from the law to be Spirit-guided and enjoy Christ's righteousness. Putting it slightly different. We are sanctified, or we are, sanct we act out sanctified living by the Spirit. It's not just behavior modification. It's transformation. 
We aren't living by rules. We are living by his guidance. And so Paul's making a point with marriage. Just as through death, an individual is freed to be remarried. Spiritually, we are freed through death, his death, and our symbolic death in association with him to a new way of living. Not bound by rules or a code, but living by God's direction and the spirit who lives in us. He continues on at verse 7. It's going to be a bigger chunk. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. That's all those no's that we talked about last week. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. If you're getting confused, that's okay. He continues on. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's going to continue on, and I'll get back to that eventually. But there are a couple things that we need to deal with here. First, it has that never. We mentioned it last week. I made a big deal out of it. If you missed it, you can go back and find that if you want to. I pointed out all of these that pop up. There are 10 of them in Romans But he also has 74 total rhetorical questions. He might have caught a couple others in there. But it's a strong, never much stronger than I'm stating because, well, we're all American and we don't like it when people shout too much. Paul is shouting, though. He's emphatic. I have another one for you. This one comes from Farrah Shaw. We talked about it in our staff meeting last week. She has one. When something happens like that, she says something along the lines of, ew, no. If that one fits better for you, it's probably more emphatic when she says it, but use that one instead. 
There's another interesting thing that happened there, though. If you caught it, it's where language matters. There was a pronoun change, and probably a significant one. Throughout Romans, Paul has been talking to you, as in you all, and we, as in all of us. But he switches over to I as he goes through this, the confusing what am I doing section. I want to do this, but I'm doing that. I want to do that, and then I do this instead. I'm in conflict, inner turmoil, and I keep coming back to what am I doing? And he switched to an I. I think it's his personal experience. Then in verse 8 and 11, it points out that sin is seizing the opportunity. This is what he's been describing. But we experience this. Where sin entices us, even as Christians. Where sin gets us to rethink things. Is that what God said? Maybe I want him to have said this. Yes, indeed, he said what I wanted him to say. And not what I know he says for me not to do. And we go through those gymnastics where language stops making sense sometimes. Because we want God to have said different things. Or we just don't care. Well, sin says it doesn't matter. It seizes the opportunity. It says it's all right. In fact, Paul's been dealing with this. Grace means you can do it and get away with it. So why don't you? And the why don't you is because Romans 12 is coming. To be living sacrifices. It's because 1 Corinthians says, well, yes, actually, you are free even to sin, but that's not the best way to live. Because if you've enjoyed grace, there's a better way to live and you should want that. But we live in this turmoil where sin is seizing opportunities to make us do all kinds of, entice us, I should say, to do all kinds of things that we know better, that we ought not do, that we don't even want to do, but in the moment we do want to do. This is John Owen's mortification of sin. In fact, it's... The second part of his statement, be killing sin, that's part one, and Paul gets to that in a bit, or sin will be killing you. Sin will seize its opportunity. little FYI, by the way, some fun information for you. Apparently, John Owen preached that the first time to a group of teenage boys. That was the first time he delivered that sermon. We call that youth ministry. I was a fan of that when I heard it. Also... Dietrich Bonhoeffer did a lot of youth ministry. It's not a new thing since World War II. It's a history of the world thing playing out in different ways. The version we know it might be very impacted by World War II in American culture. But it's been around for a long time. So those of you familiar with that great sermon where mortification of the sin comes about, his first time giving that was to a group of teenage boys. It was to a youth group. They didn't call it that, of course. But that's what it was. Verse 12 talks about the law and command that it's holy and righteous and good because it's easy for us. This would be another example of sin seizing the opportunity. Does that mean that God's words then were bad and sinful? Again, never, by no means, any of those that you want. And so Paul counters that and he says, no, the law and the command are good and holy and righteous And the response to that should be, well, of course it is. It's God's word. Go read Psalm 119. And it uses those words, law, command, decree, and 
several others. But as he's walking through this, I don't know what I do, but I know this. The law told me what sin was. It defined it for me. But then he gets to the struggle. 7.15 through 25 is the core of that. And I already read it. But the struggle where he just goes, what am I doing? And we find ourselves in an interesting spot because if you've bumped into this, there's a debate about who he's talking about. It's newish, but it's not necessarily brand new in a couple ways. I first bumped into this at Biola and Talbot in the mid-90s. If you listen to its proponents, they'll actually try to push it back even farther. I'm not sure it goes back as far as they think, although there's some reason for that because the Christian world has often discussed some things and it kind of ebbs and flows and whether it's in fashion or not. But some will argue that this is a before-faith moment. I'm not really going to argue their case, but they make some decent points. I just think they're incorrect. I don't think it holds. I think what I would call and consider the traditional view and the one that probably is what you thought, and you might even be shocked to think somebody's describing that as a pre-Christ moment, I think is the true one, that this is a Christian that's struggling. Here's a couple of my why, why I disagree with that, why I still hold to that. No, Paul's talking about a Christian here. First, it's our own experience. There's a reason we resonate with that passage. If you've ever read it, I am convinced that you looked at it and said, yes, that's me. That was me last week. That was me a month ago. That'll be me next week. It's not every moment of living in a way that follows Christ, but it's some moments of following Christ where we look at ourselves and say, what am I doing? I'm eating chicken out of a trash can and that's not inherently sinful, but it is stupid. At least if you have an offer of chicken on a plate. And we do the same thing as Christians. It's our own experience. Again, that's probably why some of you are shocked that there is a debate. It just seems obvious to many of us. The second thing, though, is that pronoun change that Paul made. I think it's his experience. I think that's why he shifted He's saying, this is what I live. And if you've ever thought of Paul as a perfect Christian that never sinned, I'll give you two things. One I'm certainly convinced of and I don't think is up for debate. He fought with Barnabas and they broke up. Barnabas the encourager and Paul got into a fight about whether to take somebody on a missions trip. And I think Paul was being a punk. Maybe Barnabas was too. But I don't think Paul was acting holy in that moment. I think God used it. But this would be the other one, and certainly not the only two, by the way. But I think Paul is saying, no, I have this what am I doing issue as well. The struggle of sanctification is what we're talking about. The mortification of sin, but the fact that we don't always kill sin when we should. And I think Paul is admitting that he doesn't either. That while he wants to, which is what he's talking about, that he sometimes finds himself doing the opposite of what he wants, which is honoring God, that he doesn't do it all the time. But here's two more. It fits with the particular context, context, yes, and content. My brain was trying to do both words at one time. It fits with the context of what he's saying right now. As he's talking about it and he goes into chapter 8, it fits that it's a Christian and there's a lot of points where it doesn't fit that it's not a Christian. Now, there are some 
where I can see where their argument is coming from, but I just don't think it's whole, it holds. There's too many moments. If you read through chapters 7 and 8, the first half of 8 at least, where he seems to be indicating this is a person that knows Christ. And then fourth, in the greater context, which I think is even more important in Romans, the greater context of the Romans road, this is not the condemnation section. This is the having come to Christ section. Romans 1 through 3, y'all are condemned in so many ways. Me too. All of us are. That's the point of chapter 1, 2, and 3. But then 4, 5, and 6 is we are saved through Christ. And then in 7 and 8, he turns towards no condemnation, children of God, dead to sin, and no separation. Those aren't things that are being talked about in regards to a non-Christian. Paul would never say those things about a non-Christian. He would present to them that that's what they get to look forward to in Christ. But he would never reference them as, as having those things true of them when they aren't. He would not deceive somebody that way. So the greater context of the Romans road, Romans 1 through 11, is Paul explaining in depth that long-form gospel. And then even 12 through 16 is the living out sanctification in light of it. Well, he's already turning to sanctification here. The gospel really is chapters 1 through 6, and the rest of it is implications of and questions that come out of the gospel as he's explaining that long-form gospel. So if you needed convincing, I think Paul's making it clear, I'm talking about Christians. People that are saved by Christ and dead to sin. The passage itself, where it gets to what am I doing? If we still sin, even though we're already dead to it, if that's true, this is the passage. And if we're struggling and being slaves to righteousness, slaves to God, which he just talked about, then there's one of those questions that he's dealing with. Should we then be concerned that it means we as individuals are not saved or that we haven't followed Christ? Because when 1 John 1 says we don't live by sin and when Romans says we're dead to sin, and I still find myself sinning, I have a big concern. And if you listen to theologians that embrace that Christians never sin, well, then they need to go read Romans and 1 John 1. But you're left wondering, as I've encountered people, often in youth group, sometimes within my own loved ones, circles, not that I don't love the youth group, I absolutely do, but bringing it even closer. And we think, well, am I a Christian? Sometimes I don't look as Christian as I think I should. And that's Romans 7. Paul's answering that. Romans 7, what am I doing? But then he lands at Romans 8, 1. No condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're struggling with the tension and if you're wondering, what am I doing? I came to Christ when I was three. I'm better than this. I'm 83 and I still get angry at people. And no, I'm not 83, by the way. Hope to be someday. But I know 83-year-olds that still get unrighteously angry. Maybe less than they used to. Hopefully less than they used to. Maybe not, though. 
But to that, Paul wonderfully says, therefore, no, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What am I doing? I keep struggling with sin. If I'm saved and dead to sin, why am I still sinning? And Paul says, I know. But there's no condemnation. For Psalm 1, 5 through 9, forgiven even though we sin. First Psalm 1, 5 through 9, by the way, also talking to Christians, it really isn't, I mentioned it's in the Romans Road in the short version a lot of times, but it's really not a verse for non-Christians. It's true if non-Christians confess their sin and follow Christ, they are saved. But that's a verse talking from Papa John, the grandpa of the church at the time, talking to the younger believers, which are all of them because he's really old at that point. And he's saying, you're forgiven. Continue confessing, you're forgiven. It's another reason to boot it from the Roman road, in my opinion, but part, mostly because Paul talks about it. Just add Paul back in. It's still a great verse. You can use it. But in Romans 7, 15 through 25, we see that struggle. And in Romans 8, 1, we see Paul's answer. No condemnation. 7, 18, specifically that desire to do right. Here's another reason I think it's talking about a Christian. Not apart from Christ you don't. 3, 10 through 12 already established that. Nobody does good. Nobody seeks God. Nobody's wanting to do good in their heart unless Christ has worked in their heart. Not apart from Christ, we don't want to. That desire itself points to Christ's presence and work in our life. That very practical, what am I doing? Why am I still treating my kids, my spouse, whomever this way? Why am I still struggling with and running to the same sin. Why am I still finding new sins to get caught up in? And the answer is stop it. But the other answer is there's no condemnation. Know how Christ views you. 8.1 keeps going. And 8, I mentioned this. 8.1 is a bad chapter break. You need to know this about the chapter breaks. Every time I read this, by the way, I end up putting it in a different place. This is why they ultimately just had to pick one. But it should probably go through verse 16, maybe all the way through verse 14 or later. How far do I go? Uh, 20, sorry. All the way to 28 is where I finally printed out. We're not going to go that far today. But it keeps going. It's certainly not all of eight. Maybe it should get wiped out and, the, and we should have one less chapter in Romans. I don't know. Don't panic. I'm not talking about wiping out scripture. I'm just talking about the the verse and chapter demarcations, which came in later, by the way. These are really something from the printing press in most cases. It happens a little bit before that, but it becomes popular. The one we use comes out of around the time of the printing press. There are a few places like Lamentations where they're natural to an original to Scripture. Each of the five chapters in Lamentations is an individual poem. But most of the chapters and verses, if you ever are reading and go, huh, that's a weird place. You're probably right. They just picked it. Makes it much easier in Sunday school, doesn't it? Could you imagine if in Sunday school you went in there or in a small group or you're talking to a friend and they just said, well, somewhere in Isaiah, like, that's a long book. I don't have that one memorized. Like, well, eh, just trust me. Like, I don't know that I want to. You're saying something I'm not sure is correct. I need to go find where it's at. So they put them in, but they are not usually original to scriptures. So just know that. But let me read 7.21, and we're going to go through 8.16. 
So I find this to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the answer. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, he's saved, but he's still struggling. But 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Continuing on, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sinning in his, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. For the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if this, by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. And a beautiful verse here. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And it continues on because even there is not a great place to stop. But Paul's argument takes a little new turn there. But one could argue it doesn't because it actually continues on even to the point where the entire earth is groaning as we live in the struggle where we say, what am I doing? And the world essentially, like not the people of the world, but the world itself, creation essentially agrees and goes, yeah, what did you do all the way back in the garden and what are you still doing? Because creation groans longing for the new earth and restoration. And in the meantime, we're in this tension, conflicted, where we want to honor God, and even though we fail, or even though we want to honor God, we still fail. But even though we still fail, he looks at us and he says, 8-1, no condemnation. And 8-14 and 16, you're my child. I don't look at you as somebody struggling, no matter how bad that struggle is, if you're mine, you're mine. You're my beloved child. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of Paul's argument. Even though we still see this tension, we enjoy his embrace. And we have a God that looks at us and he says, I adopted you and I made you your own and condemned is not your status. Child is your status. 
my child is your status. No matter how bad you failed in the face of sin this week or today, you are not condemned. You are my child. The struggle is real. We're going to encounter moments where we say, what am I doing? But I would encourage you to embrace that struggle. Embrace the fight. Kill sin. You're in a battle with sin, and it is looking to seize the opportunity. And there are so many times in our daily experience where it wins out, but that's not your status. Embrace that fight. If you want a better picture, a more appealing picture, and more appetizing picture, it's Ephesians 6. Put on the armor of God to embrace the fight against sin. But to be honest, I'm more concerned with those of us who don't struggle. And I don't mean that anybody who actually kind of seems to have sanctification together and they don't struggle that way. I mean those of us who have tapped out on the struggle and we're not in the fight. Because there's too many times as Christians where we aren't fighting against sin and we're living as if it's not enticing us. And yet Paul says it's looking to seize an opportunity. The scarier part for me is when we act as if there is no struggle. Yes, we have victory in Christ. That's why we struggle. Because we know that we ought to be and can be, even in a moment, victorious. And so we fight for victory because he's already secured it. But it's my friends who claim Christ and have stopped struggling that are the ones that concern me most. Those are the ones that I start to wonder, have they ever truly known Christ? Not in a judgmental way, but just wondering why they don't seem to join Paul in the struggle against sin and rather just seem to be embracing it. So part of it is get in the fight and kill sin while enjoying those wonderful truths. That we are children of God, claimed by him and embraced by him, no matter how dirty we might get, falling on our face in the struggle against sin. Our salvation is secure and our status is secure. We're his children. And the pronouncement that there is no condemnation, that it is declared that you and I, if we have put our faith in Christ, are forgiven and that we are not condemned even if this morning you failed in the face of sin. That like a child, you would simply run back and say, Abba, Father, I need you today and enjoy his embrace. Let's pray. Lord, mighty holy, we praise your name. Help us to be faithful in fighting against sin. But Lord, also keep us from despair if we fail in that fight. For the moments we wonder, what am I doing? Help us to then decide what I'm doing is running back to Christ. I'm running back into your arms to enjoy grace anew. For I am not condemned. And instead, we are your children beloved ones of God. We praise your name. Amen.